0: If you like sports talk with absolutely no sports talk, then welcome back to the latest episode of the Just Not Sports podcast. This is the show where a couple guys who work in sports talk to the people who play and cover sports about anything they like that's just not sports. I am your host, Brad Burke. I'm a sports marketer in Chicago. My co-host, Gareth Hughes, he will be joining us later after the interview for some distractions. He is uh, he is moving around remotely with the family this week. So we're gonna try and pin him down to continue our, yes, that's right, our summer of Stephen King and give you an update on <laughs> some of your listener feedback to Gareth and I revisiting these old books from our past. But on today's show first, our guest today is Jessica Luther. Jessica is a sports writer, an investigative journalist, and the co-host of the Burn It All Down podcast, a really great show that takes a progressive view of the culture around sports. She will be breaking down her new book with Kavitha Davidson. You know Kavitha, friend of show. She's been on this podcast before, talking about her passion for music. Anyway, they have collaborated on a new book called Loving Sports When They Don't Love You Back. And to me, it's a really fascinating look at the dilemmas of the modern sports fan. Several of whom, like myself, love sports, remain committed to sports, but are just trying desperately to wrap their heads and their arms around some of the complexities of sports that they just simply don't like. Whether that's a bad owner, whether that's a negative relationship between team, and uh, the local community, whether that is doping, whether that is inequities uh, that exist within sports or, or around uh, different things like gender or amateurism. So I, I had a chance to give the book an early read and I thought it was really good. And I think we have a a, a really interesting and lively discussion with Jessica about the process behind writing it and uh, why they chose the topics that they chose. But we also do what we always do on this show, which is give her a chance to talk about something that is not sports that she loves. And she chose romance novels. Yes, romance novels. Now look, we covered this subject once years ago with who I'm going to say right now is maybe WNBA MVP frontrunner, Courtney Vandersloot. Uh, she talked about romance novels. So Jessica and I get into it. We talk about what defines a romance novel, sort of the the complex evolution of the genre over the years. We talk about authors that she really likes and and, and entry points, for people who want to check out the genre, but who maybe don't know where to start, and then uh, we also talk a little bit about baking, stress baking, <laughs> um, signature dishes, and the role that uh, you know baking has played in in getting her and her family through the pandemic. So, I think you're gonna enjoy it. And then afterwards, stick around. Gareth and I are gonna break down Stephen King's The Dead Zone, which we reread and have a lot of thoughts about. <laughs> <laughs> The book is great. Got a chance to, um, you know, get get an advanced copy. And, and what I don't want to do today is trample all over the conclusions that you that you all draw uh, at the end of each chapter. So I was hoping to more dive into some of the themes. I was going to start with the doping chapter. And, and mm-hmm. I love the the line that like just like literally leapt off the page and punched me was when you write that, you know, uh, sports are made up. And and it's so clear and simple, and yet I think articulates the tension that we feel with trying to draw defined, uh, you know, lines for what's in bounds and what's not for sports that are inherently, to a certain degree, arbitrary in nature. So, from your perspective, how challenging was it to try to explore um, what it's like for fans to uh, process, forgive, uh, cheer for athletes they know might be, um, you know, violating the rules, even though these rules sometimes can be difficult to define?
1: Yeah, I found it. I mean, I think that's one of the big tensions in all of this, and the doping chapter in particular. I thought I knew a lot about it. <laughs> like, I went in like. Mm-hmm. Oh, I know what I'm going to do. I like. I thought I knew a lot about Balco and baseball, and I, (laughs) I didn't know much of any of that. I learned very fast. (laughs) Um, But doping in general, when I, it was like, okay, we have to define this now. What is it? And like, we actually went back and forth with the editor. He's like, no, we need more information. It's like it's really hard to pin this down because it is so arbitrary and so much of. Like one of the difficulties in sports in general is that people are always convinced that the way that things are right now in sport is how they always have been mm-hmm. and should always remain, which is not true ever. Um, and so that's why you get like these big arguments over whether or not you should move, um, like the football kickoff line, right? Like this idea that it has to be the same one all the time because it always has been. And so, yeah, doing the doping chapter it was like, well, we just made all of this up. Like some of it is <laughs> true and good. Like these things can harm people, right? Yeah. Like they're trying to limit harm, but some of it is like, they don't know really what it's doing and how they enforce it. That's totally arbitrary, of course. And what do you do with that? Right. And so as writers, it's like, what do we do with that? And I think just saying out loud, like this stuff is made up and we have to all acknowledge that when we're talking about what can actually be changed here and how we think about um, how it is right now.
0: Yeah. And you get into what I think is a very modern dilemma in this conversation, which is this way that we celebrate the, you know, air quote, natural advantages of some athletes and demonize Uh those for others. And especially when you think about, you know, Michael, you know, the same organizations that are championing Michael Phelps for having less, you know, whatever it is, lactic acid or whatever build up are the ones that are uh, demonizing, you know, uh, uh, Caster Semenya, in terms of her just natural advantages, natural gifts, and and, and they've put her onto the d- the defensive for the past uh, several years. How did you go into that, and and where where do you fall in terms of how we should be, especially more keen potentially to how the role gender and race play in some of the conversations that are happening or on this topic.
1: Yeah, I think we have to be hyper aware of who's actually making all these decisions. And who's actually being punished because we're going to find that those um, it tends to be rich white people who live in the northern hemisphere, uh, who are making these determinations and the people getting punished are often black and brown people who live in the southern mm-hmm. hemisphere. And that's not a mistake. Right. That is um is how the system itself is set up and we just have to be hyper aware of it and it is so interesting like once you start really asking enough questions it becomes clear that we don't have a good understanding of why these choices are being made like why is it that caster gets punished for her body doing something different like this is why they're olympians right there's something different Mm. about them like Maybe if we all worked as hard as they did, but we don't even believe that, right? Like if everyone worked exactly the same at um, the long jump, there's still gonna be the three people in the world who are going to jump the longest. And there's something different about them. And we are thrilled about it. But as soon, especially around black and brown women, especially if they look a certain way, if they don't look feminine enough, they get a ton of scrutiny. And then you get this kind of, institutional rulemaking that then punishes them and everyone goes oh well those are the rules right so we have to follow them because there's rules and it's like well those are made up too um and so i'm not trying to say that these aren't complicated topics uh that intersex athletes or you know this is often the conversation around trans athletes like i'm not saying these things aren't complicated but we we need to take into account that these are actual people and so much of what we tend to celebrate in certain athletes get punished in others and as fans of these sports we really should be reconciling that
0: absolutely um now in the book i had like a, a what i would call a weird um sports fan bingo uh as i read <laughs> it so you had a chapter on you know racist mascots you had a chapter on bad team owners and you had a chapter on you know, stadiums that leach public money. I'm a Bengals <laughs> fan. Okay. So okay. I've got one of the worst stadium deals for my, where my mom still lives. Uh, he's mm-hmm. like a birther allegedly. Uh, so he checks the oh, you geez. know weird, the, the weird racism bucket and, uh, you know, failed to build a winner, um, over the years and just a general malaise of the fan base. W- what advice would you give me on how to, um, how to reconcile my 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 Bengals fandom, which I have just not been able to shake on, like some of my friends,
1: oh man, i don't I don't know. This is part. this is like one of the things we don't do in the book, right? is tell people <laughs> like this this particular quandary, and Kavita would laugh at this um a lot as someone who, Group in New York and as a Knicks fan, this that all of that, a lot of that was very personal to her. And I, of course, write about how I went to Florida State um, and we have a mascot that I am not thrilled about. And I don't, yeah, I don't know, what do you do? Um, I'm sure, like you said, you have friends who are just like, forget it, I'm done here. Yeah. Like, I can't take it anymore. And that's certainly one thing that people do all the time. Um, I don't, it's so hard. I think what's really difficult about this is that what you're talking about you're saying what do i as an individual fan do about these major systemic issues like what do i do about the fact that there's like racist white men who control a bunch of things um, and they have a ton of money and they get to make all these decisions and then they're friends with the legislators who then pass the laws that allow them to get subsidies so they can build you know with public funding these private stadiums like those are all massive, massive cultural problems that go so beyond sports, but are just so clarified in sports. And you're like, a, you're just a dude who doesn't like <laughs> that that's how these things work. But you really do like this team for all kinds of reasons, I'm sure. Um, sometimes we do, a, you know, you stick by them because you get something out of being like the fan who stuck by them, um, like that's a badge of honor. Um, or it's like part of your childhood or where you grew up, or it's a community of people that you love being a part of. And so I don't have a good answer for you because it is really hard as an individual to figure out how to change an entire system. So sometimes it's just small things like whether or not, where are you putting your money? Um, are you you know, voting against public funding right. of these stadiums? You know, those are all little things and maybe they don't add up to a grand gesture that makes you feel better all the time. But maybe part of being a sports fan is you don't feel great all the time about it. Yeah. And you just kind of have to deal with that, too.
0: I'm just trying to outlive Mike Brown. I'll I'll get there, hopefully, eventually. (laughs) Um,
1: I I think we all have those people in our lives. Yeah.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Your chapter on women's sports is something we've talked about extensively on this show. Uh, You kind of hit on one of the, the fundamental tensions, which is there remains this... Uh, for lack of a better word, triggered dude online who cannot just uh. let other people enjoy the sports, who have to continue to jump into the threads and just and and, and try to justify why no one should like these sports. W- what do you think is the essential and you know pathway to us getting to a place where people can just? S- appreciate the greatness of these, uh, you know, these women athletes and, and without having to consistently justify how great they actually are.
1: Man, I don't know. It's like, it would be like me spending all my time telling people who care about baseball, that that is not a thing I care about. So why do they care about it? It's such a <laughs> strange thing to me though. Of course it's rooted in all kinds of misogyny that people have. Um, and then when we talk about like the WNBA, then we're, t- you know, we're talking about racism and right. there's a lot of homophobia involved. And those are huge things that what are we going to do about that? Um, but yeah, I'm a huge proponent in the idea that sports media should take all these women and the sports that they play much more seriously. They should give them a lot more space. Like one of the things that always gets me about how women's sports function in our society. Like I've set up a social media now where I have a pretty good connection to A bunch of people who also care about these things so i tend to get a fair amount of news and updates and i got the newsletters and i'm in the slacks with the people and the twitter lists and all those things i can keep up um but still with men like i don't follow the nba that closely like close enough to do my job but not that closely and i still always kind of know what's happening (laughs) and it's like this osmosis Mm -hmm. like if you just exist in the sports world You always kind of have an idea and it's much harder to do that with women's sports because sports media in general, doesn't take it that seriously. We're seeing a change that's getting, I feel like that's different for the WNBA. Again, it's hard. I feel like it's hard for me to judge that because I feel like I've created my own little um, bubble (laughs) of sports media who covers that, but it does matter. Like, so part of it is just taking them seriously within sports right? Like we don't really even do that yet. So we can start there. That'll like trickle out because they're really good athletes. I think. And the thing about it too, is a lot of people who love sports a lot will just kind of watch whatever sports. I mean, I've watched really dumb, boring things before because two people are competing. Uh, I saw that John Oliver was talking about sponsoring the marble races. And I was like, you know what? I'd watch it. Like (laughs) I will watch anything. And so I think that's true for women. Like we definitely, you know, tennis, there's still all kinds of sexism in tennis, but still people are really willing to watch women play tennis as much as they're willing to watch men play tennis. We know that Serena's one of the most popular athletes in the entire world. And so we know that it's true that if you just put them out there, people will watch them in the same way. And I think come to appreciate them as athletes so i know chicken egg like it's so hard to convince the media that they should do it um but i really feel like they should like we have to start there
0: yeah and you have so many other great chapters you you mentioned tennis you you, you dive into the you know in, inequities there you dive into just um the idea of everyone kind of coming around to the to the notion that sports will be political um before we move on to to the other topics i, I did want to ask you about domestic violence because I know Mm -hmm. in following a lot of the women who work in media, it has really opened my eyes to, you know, from when I was a younger person, maybe I would see a story about so-and-so arrested for uh, a domestic incident and just kind of chalk it up in the same bucket that I would see DUI or whatever else. Um, Now I think of it much more as a disqualifying, um, you know, action for a lot of the way that I feel about, uh, you know, particular athletes. What do you think it will take for more men to come around on on this topic in the same way because Again, much like we talked about, there's a certain type of man who just cannot handle the fact that people watch women's sports. There's a a certain type of person, again, whether they exist more online than in real life, I don't know, uh, but who mm-hmm. gets very loud, very angry when people say maybe we should drop Greg Hardy because of this, or maybe I shouldn't invite Chad Ochocinco onto my podcast because um, you know he was involved in, in a horrific incident. What do you think is going to help turn that tide even more than than it's already done to date?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. So I if people know me from anything, um, it's normally that I write a lot on gendered violence in sport. And I started back in 2013. So it's been, oh, my God, seven years. Um, Wow. And it's very different now. So when I was doing it back then, there weren't we didn't have as robust a conversation. And of course, like one of the things that has happened in that time is there's just, I think, way better reporting within sports media. because at some point there was a study and it was like one fourth of all stories about sexual assault are in sports sections of newspapers, mm-hmm. like this sports matter for this conversation for a vir- variety of reasons. And that's a whole other thing. Um, but then we've had Me Too and the Me Too movement. One thing that I think like I think you kind of said it, that, you know, a lot of women who have talked to you about their experiences and how they feel about it. And that's changed your mind. And that's a really slow process. Like one of the things I find the hardest about gendered violence is that to change anything around it takes a really long time. And that means people are being harmed uh, and, and hurt mm-hmm. and injured during those changes. Uh, and that is terrible every single time it happens. Uh, but I do think, you know, as a culture, we're starting to learn so much more about really how ubiquitous. Uh, this kind of violence is, how many people it harms, even if it's not violence, harassment, right? Um, That these are common experiences for a huge majority of the population. And we're just kind of finally having a, uh, a continuous conversation about this, both within and without sports. And I don't, so I don't know if I have like a great answer to this. I mean, I wish like, if I could wave a wand, that would be like one of the first things i change. <laughs> um, But I do just think people having a sense of how common this is in people's and a lot of women's lives um, and also getting a real sense of like how the structures exist as they are right now to shelter men who harm and that sports is a as much a part of that as anything else. I feel like a lot of the time it is just that kind of knowledge that changes people, but getting that knowledge out and letting it seep in and and really have an impact that just takes so long. And I think it's that amount of time that just sucks. (laughs) Like it sucks (laughs) that that it's like that, but I'm not sure how else you speed that up.
0: Well, look, the book is is truly great, and now I'm going to make what I can only describe as the clumsiest uh, literary <laughs> uh, you know, uh, transition no, it, ever. <laughs> it totally works. We also wanted to talk romance novels today. Yes.
1: I-, I got a couple... No, to me, those are totally related. Okay, yeah. So <laughs> it works for me.
0: <laughs> Let me start here because I don't think you would have a conversation about romance novels without defining the genre um, for people who may not have a a more modern view of it. So how do you define what counts as a, you know, air quotes, romance novel and and, and what does not?
1: I think the main thing is that the central story is some kind of relationship. Um, You know, we think historically of man and woman, hetero, but like that's expansive now. So any kind of like romantic relationship at the center. And the biggest thing is it has to have a happy ever after, the H-E-A at the end. And that's kind of it. And I will say that the reason that this makes sense to me that we are going to go from all this heavy stuff that we just talked about to talking about romance novels. And I think in my first book, which is about college football and sexual assault, in my acknowledgments, I thanked romance authors because Mm -hmm. these books are so they're such a light in my life in, in large part because there's a happy ever after. Like, I know that I'm safe to read this book and I will feel happy at the end. And that is not true in a lot of the work <laughs> that I do. And so that that safety net of that, uh, I just find to be um, so important in my life. So I am a huge romance novel fan, like just huge. I,
0: I did go back and, and, and search out the article that you'd written several years ago now about just the evolution within the genre and how it moved from, and I'm going to probably botch this term, but like, is it, is it bodice or bodice rippers? It's bodice. Okay. Bodice Bodice rippers. Rippers. Can Mm -hmm. you help us understand that type of romance novel and, and the, the, the role that authors have played in advancing away from the, maybe the old um, tropes of the seventies and so forth?
1: Sure. So, romance novels became really big, and I'm going to do my best. Like, there are scholars of this, so no one, <laughs> no one beat me up for this. But um, in the 70s, when romance novels became a, the, you know, a phenomenon, and they did write bodice rippers. That's what they're called. Everyone thinks about like the man like ripping open her her dress. Uh, think of Fabio on the cover. That's kind of right. the big one. Um, and the idea, like, there's a lot of problems with consent in those books. But the idea there even is nuanced. Um, And it's so hard to talk about because it's messed up. (laughs) Uh, But the (laughs) idea that, like, if you're not consenting, but then you like it, you don't have to then, um, you didn't make the choice. So, like, you're not at fault, even though you're enjoying it. And that's like a problem. And the genre in general has gotten much better since then. But it did take away it didn't make it like the women were naughty for making these sexual decisions. Right. Um, that's the wrong way to go about it, but that's sort of where that comes from. And that has, people really still believe that that's a lot of what is in romance novels, but I mean, it's such a, it's just grown up over the years and it's huge. Uh, this is one of the things that's like a juggernaut within publishing, um, People who love romance novels read them all the time. It's mainly women, of course, mainly women who write them, mainly women who read them. And so now there's it's so much better. Like, it's not that they're all perfect on consent. Uh, Most of them are, though. Most writers are really hyper aware of this. And it's so much about the empowerment of women's sexuality and them taking charge of that and getting pleasure and all these things that we in pop culture in general maybe we're shifting on this but in most pop culture that's not true it's so much about men and what they think about sex and where they get pleasure from and romance novels are not about that um somewhat but it's a lot about what that means for women and that's cool as hell like when i discovered <laughs> that i was just like whoa like you can do pop culture in this way uh, that centers women's pleasure and so i don't i just and so that's been kind of the evolution over time, and and romance is really interesting because uh, it's also got all kinds of problems right now. There's a lot of great work that's been done about racism within the you know publishing in general, but also within romance, and so there's strives to make all of that better to make it inclusive in general, like about having trans romances, and uh-huh. or at least for some her- heroes or heroines, uh, all, you know to make the entire genre. So everyone can find those stories that want them. Uh, And so they have a lot of work to do. But I don't know, I love them. I think they're fun. There's also this idea that they're trashy, or there's always negative connotations, uh, in large part because of sexism, again, because of who makes and consumes them. But man, like, these are really a lot of them are just really good writers. They just happen to tell stories about relationships that end in a happy ever after. So yeah, I, don't I mean, know what's not to love about that? As someone rereading <laughs>
0: like coked out Stephen King of the early '80s, I'm not going to judge anyone's <laughs> genre, yeah. genre works. Now, who are the who are the go to authors or mm. maybe series for you? I, I, not to put you on the spot, and make you power rank, uh, you know, an entire enormous uh, section of uh, of literature. But w- where where are your go tos?
1: Yeah, so there's certain people that I'll like read anything that comes out, and so I always start with Courtney Milan. She's brilliant. She does a lot of historical romances. So those are, in, you know, 18th, like 17th, 18th, 19th. We tend to think of like Jane Austen or something like that. Um, she has a new one coming out next month. I'm very excited. So Courtney is so good. She wrote one of the most feminist, like I would say capital F feminist romance novels I've ever read, which is The Suffragette Scandal. And I just find her writing to be so smart and Let's see. I love Alicia Rye, R-A-I. Uh, she wrote this great book called um, *A Gentleman in the Streets*. Um, he's very naughty in the sheets. If you don't catch that reference, <laughs> uh, but she is so good. Alicia is so good at uh, the economy of her words. Like I just feel like everything is so tight in her writing and her character development. Like I always feel like. Every auxiliary character, she has a whole story for them built out that like she could have told us about them. So her worlds are like complete, but the economy of of the actual words that she uses is, is so impressive. Um, I just read a great book called Queen Move by Kennedy Ryan, and it was the only one I've read by her. But people love her, and she actually does sports romances, which is a whole hmm. subgenre. Uh, Queen Move was not that, but it was. Um, I don't know. I just, I loved the power in that story. Like the woman, is a very powerful um, political consultant, and she doesn't compromise any of that. And I just loved that whole story. Oh gosh, I could do this all day. This is a problem. <laughs> um, the other one that I read recently that I would tell people about is Scarlett Peckham, who is fascinating, a newish author, but she just read, or she just wrote a great book. A historical one called the Rake kess so it's like a rake but a woman and it's based on who um i want to say it's mary shelley who wrote frankenstein oh,
0: yeah yeah
1: i think it's her like or maybe it's her, isn't her mother mary Wollstonecraft. anyway it's one of those it's famous ladies in history who had sort of um her own complicated relationships with men and reputations around it and so she centers this woman uh oh god i love that book i read it like twice in a row so (laughs) i'll just stop there i feel like i could talk about talia hibbert or sarah mclean like i could go on forever there's so many really good ones out there
0: is there like a good entry point for someone who wants to dive in i mean or, or is that different than any of the names that you just rattled off
1: hmm i think you just if there's something you are interested in, there's probably a romance novel where the hero or heroine or however you want to say, they probably have something to do with it. Um, so there's a, like, if you're a sports person, there's a ton of sports romances. Uh, and so you can always start there. But when a lot of my friends, I tell them to read Courtney Milan's a suffragist scandal because they get to see how feminist the genre can be, which is often my friends are worried that it's not. <laughs> so <laughs> That's always a really good place, but people can hit me up on the Twitters and I will tell them about books to read.
0: You know, uh, ESPN's Katie Barnes came on and they talked about um, writing yeah. fan fiction for Grey's Anatomy um, you know, online <laughs> several years them. ago. Have you ever thought about dabbling in, in writing or have you ever done any no. writing yourself? Okay. Do you, you nope. keep this nope. compartmentalized to in Yeah, no, I'm not a reading. fiction
1: yeah, I'm not a fiction person. And I can remember, I read this romance novel by Ruthie Knox many years ago. I don't know, Ruthie hasn't published anything in a long time. But the hero, I want to say it was the hero in the book, he had made all his family money from like, piano felt like the the type of felt that goes in a piano. And, and I wrote her and I was like, how the hell did you come up with that? Like, how is that like the thing? Uh, and she had a whole reason how she first came across it. and She just held on to it. And I was like, man, my brain does not work that way. And I just remember that was one of those moments where I was like, mm, I'm never doing that. So <laughs> some people ask me this a fair amount, but no, I, I just, my, I'm not my head. I don't have a head for it.
0: Um, yeah. Do, do you have one, one or two more minutes for a baking question or two? Yeah, of course. Okay. Absolutely. Because you mentioned baking, and I was wondering, we hear so much about the idea of, like, stress baking, especially during quarantine. Yeah. I'm wondering how much of that is real versus that is cliche. <laughs> like, is, is baking yeah. therapeutic for you? Because I know you've talked about yeah. the role that romance novels plays in your own mental health, especially uh, juxtaposing that between the subjects that you cover as, as a journalist, as a writer. Mm-hmm. But does baking actually relieve stress for you? Because I'm just going to tell you right now, I'm I'm terrible baker, and it is a highly (laughs) stressful activity, especially when my kids get involved. So I was just wondering, truth versus fiction on that front.
1: Yeah. So for me, it is uh, a stress reliever, and I'm I am a good baker, so I don't fail that often, which is good. Uh, I, I guess if I was failing a lot, then maybe I would feel differently about it. But for me, so I have anxiety. And I have to be careful that I don't dip into depression when I get really anxious. Mm -hmm. And one of the things about my anxious brain, because I know it's different for lots of people, is that I can't focus. I have a hard time getting to the end of something because I just can't get myself to spend enough time on it. And there is something about having a recipe where you start at step one and you go to the end. And at the end, you have a thing you have made that is so good for my brain that it is like a reset in a lot of ways and then you get to eat it <laughs> and often that's <laughs> part that's like uh what that's the bonus in all of it so i do enjoy just the practice of it i guess just following the steps and getting to the end and then you have done this thing because there's times when i struggle to do that. And I also work like a lot of my work will be long-term projects, right? Like, um, uh, what I did a piece on the Dallas Mavericks with John Wertheim that came out a little while ago and we spent four months on that. And at points, you literally don't know when it's going to end. You don't know how it's (laughs) going to end. You don't know what that's going to look like. And so this is like the opposite of that. And, and yeah, so I definitely, there's also like that little bit of science i mean i'm not a science person but the fact that you can put all these things together like in quarantine for the first time ever i made and i never say this correctly those french macaroons okay the little meringue cookies with the cinder, and that is like you really have to be careful (laughs) like i watched some videos and and I did. And then I did it. And like the big thing with those is you put you pipe the meringue into these little circles and you stick them in the oven and it has to be exact right temperature. And then they expand when they're in the oven and they get what they call feet on the bottom. If you've done it correctly, if they if they don't rise correctly, then you, you haven't done it. And like when I saw the feet had come up, I was like, I did it right. <laughs> like Whatever the science of this thing is, I have done it. Uh, and I felt so good about that. So I don't know. It's all those things for me and it definitely, definitely stress relieves. I'm obsessed currently. I shouldn't even tell people listening about this. Cause I feel like I, I asked a friend yesterday if he knew about it and he didn't, and I was like, Oh, I shouldn't tell you. Cause it's this New York times spoon cake. And you just look that up and it's basically butter and milk and sugar. And then you put some fruit <laughs> on the top. And it's super easy. It's so easy and it is so good. And that's a problem because you're just kind of eating butter. (laughs) Um, (laughs) But I have now made three of those in the last week because I just, they're delightful.
0: You know, it's funny. I I think of baking as like the old NBA jam video game where everyone's got their signature move, you know? So do you have like a signature dish you roll out for big occasions because you know it's always going to be a favorite?
1: Oh, that's a great question. Do I have a signature? I feel like there, probably people in my life would say yes. Like I make biscuits a lot. That's a big one around here. Um, man, do I have a thing?
0: Well, it might be this spoon cake. <laughs> oh, yeah, maybe more. now
1: <laughs> like now I've done it so much. I mean, I like every Christmas I make cinnamon rolls. Um, I do like yeasted stuff, so which is complicated. But I do like to make like these yeasted rolls. Those things are great. I don't know. I don't know if I have a signature. We're gonna get off the phone, and I'm gonna go ask my husband, and he'll probably have an answer. <laughs> yeah,
0: that's right. Yes. Yeah, uh, if, if you don't know, ask somebody else, and they'll tell you. Uh, yeah. Exactly. It, now, from a television perspective, we're in the great um you know we're in the great uh, golden age of online mm-hmm. baking content. I feel like there's a now the dividing line is are you kind of British Bake Off like uh, I want to see the best do the best or are you like more nailed it or kitchen disasters like <laughs> where, where do you fall on that spectrum in terms of what you want from the entertainment? I just know my daughter loves she's in second grade and she loves watching those shows and I've tried to show her the the funny ones where people struggle and she just like I, I watch these to see cool stuff that I want to eat. Dad, I don't want to see someone hmm. mess up
1: oh that's funny so we as a family watch nailed it and love it and I actually find it really (laughs) yeah i find it really cute because my son he's about to be 12 and uh whenever nicole byer the host if she shows up on anything else he'll just he'll be like nicole like he knows her like (laughs) oh my friend nicole uh so i actually do enjoy it i mean i find it very funny i i actually find it very stressful in a way that's different stressful than the great british bake-off um They don't give them enough time and it just hurts me to watch them struggle. But I find it very funny. So I watch, like, we watched Nailed It. uh, But I'm a huge, great British Bake Off fan, like, just ginormous. Um, Though I don't, apparent, I do not like British baking. (laughs) Like, I don't want to make the stuff necessarily that they're making because a lot of, like, British flavors are clearly not American flavors. And I will never forgive the show. Uh, what was it, a guy made a, they were doing like American pies and a guy made a key lime pie that they all raved over and it was just a regular pie crust instead mm. of a graham cracker pie Whoa. crust. And I was like, this is so wrong. <laughs> like, you're was just it, doing was it, it wrong. Was
0: it like the appropriate yellow color? Or did they go green? I
1: think so. Okay. I can't remember now. I can just remember being so angry <laughs> The <that> pie <laughs> yeah. crust was wrong and that um paul hollywood was like this is the best pie i've ever tasted i was like i can't even with you and like paul hollywood doesn't like peanut butter which we do not understand in this family um so i don't know it oh like do i have to i don't i don't think i can choose i will watch all of them but again going back to our sports conversation i will kind of just watch any competition (laughs)
0: life's just one big jump shot one big jump shot or you might be all cash so try to maintain and refrain from the strength. And don't get lost in the salt. Don't get caught up in it. Life's just one big jump shot. And we are back in the sports world. Athletes, coaches, media, they all do interesting things that reflect their personalities and passions. And then we, the fans and the media, tell them they're being a locker room distraction. Stop being interesting. Get back to watching game film. That's ridiculous. So on this show, we celebrate distractions by telling you what's been distracting us and joining me to do that is my co-host, seven-time Emmy-winning sports producer Gareth Hughes, who's holed up at an undisclosed location on vacation. How are you
2: uh, doing this week, my friend? I'm on hold with customer service. That's what I've been doing. All- <laughs> my, my wife and I are like trying to take care of like 800 banking things, and it just leads to, like, a day spent on hold. Speaking
0: of horrifying things like dealing with customer <laughs> service, we are continuing our summer of Stephen King. I will say, starting to get some some listener feedback from people like, really? my, like my mom being like, Hey, I'm not into Stephen King. When is this going to end? And to them, I'm just going to say, I don't know. I have like 40 books now. And Gareth and I have a lot of, we take a lot of comfort in rereading these uh, books from our youth, Get Off Our Backs, Mom. How's that sound?
2: Damn right. (laughs) That's right, Mrs. Burke. Well, look, I mean... Dude, I love that your mom is encouraging us not to read. (laughs) We've come full circle. (laughs) Yeah. In the Burke family. I mean, okay, so
0: I get it. Stephen King, kind of a genre thing. Not everybody's bag, but uh, I promise you next week, Gareth and I are going to break from... Uh, the the aggressive rereads. But for this week, we've been sitting on a book that we were going to talk about a few weeks ago and we're finally getting around to because I finally finished it. And that is The Dead Zone. Um, I got to be honest, Garrett, this was a book that is, I would argue, a tier one, probably most known or popular or identified with Stephen King book. And yet mm-hmm. I had it had totally escaped me. I had never read it until we did this project. I don't know why I never had the inkling to read it as a youth. Um, tell me about your history with the book
2: and when you picked it up. No I it is it was also the oldest Stephen King book I'd never read. Um, actually, no, I've never read Christine. And truth be told, I kind of have no interest in reading Christine about a killer car. Just, I don't know, it feels too boomery or something. Like, I don't know, that one just holds no fascination for me. And I read it this past winter, Um, finished it in January. So that is one area where, I don't know, I think we share that. Like, this was one that just neither one of us read it when we were kids. And I found it then, it kind of kicked off my... Stephen King reread of this year or so.
0: Yeah, I mean, well, Dead Zone was seventy nine, Christine was eighty three, so this might have okay. been the the old because it goes. And look, I'm just looking at a f- first edition Pet Cemetery I picked up online this week, <laughs> so this is very what it casually says in, <laughs> sliding that in there. <laughs> what it says in there, yeah. Thank you Etsy. I don't know Etsy sells books, but there we go. Carrie seventy four, Salem's Lot seventy five. I'm reading Salem's Lot now, by the way. Uh, something I, that's the oldest one I had not, never read. Um, mm-hmm. Shining 77, Stan 78, Dead Zone 79.
2: Yeah, so this was the end of the 70s.
0: Yeah, I mean, in a way, you could say that this the 70s for King ended, you know, with the publication of The Dead Zone it, late in 1979 <laughs> or whatever. This yeah, is. Yeah. <laughs> On December 31st,
2: 1979.
0: <laughs> I have, I have a lot of thoughts about this book, Gareth. I want to say that there was a moment. Th- okay, I read a review once of the movie Collateral, the Michael Mann movie with Tom Cruise and Jamie mm-hmm. Fox. Love that, that was like yeah. halfway through. The guy was like, "Michael Mann has made the best movie ever about Los Angeles," and then by the end of the movie, it was like, "Well, didn't didn't quite nail that <laughs> like I thought he was going to." <laughs> um, I, I there was a, like a while in this book that I was. R- pretty into it to really into it. And then as it ended, I remember distinctly
2: being just sort of into it, if that makes sense. Well, it has two villains and I feel like one villain dies at the halfway point, And then you have to deal with the other villain till the end of the book. Um, so it's a, it it feels like a choppy read. I remember when we did our top five, um, Stephen King, I included this, but I said it felt like it was his most episodic book. Like I said, I think I said it was either a short story that got too long or, you know, like a novella, something felt weird about the pacing of it. And they used the term episodic on the Losers Club. So I felt very, I don't know, sort of you know, big upped on that. Like, I felt justified in that. Um, But I feel like the pacing and the plotting is very odd. Yeah. So I understand how you can, like... I mean, look, he telegraphs all of it. You know, like, the final confrontation is set up from the beginning, but it goes away for a long time.
0: Yeah. I I think this book would have been better served picking a lane. It is a little bit Spider-Man three-ish in terms of there's just a lot going on. And yet in a way it's, in a way it's, I I hate, I mean, look, I hate to say, Oh, if you just focused on like as being a smaller story, this would have worked. But in this case, I would have rather it been, they're hunting a serial killer. Um, Mm -hmm. and, we're going to probe that i think some of the most chilling stuff that he wrote is not so much the stilson character the the politician although you know he's clearly crazy i liked the killer i liked the idea that when he writes like the killer sat on the bench or the killer to this and it's all kind of woven in mystery from a narration perspective i actually liked that a lot and it gets solved in like one night like it, like that that whole yeah. stretch is so condensed that i go this could have been the entire book and I would have been fine with it. And in fact, I think that tone may have matched the more intimate story, which is really about a guy who feels like his very sort of quaint life passed him by and he's looking for something else, uh, you know, to fill that void.
2: Yeah. I do think that him solving like a serial killer sort of mystery with this superpower, if you will, is more Stephen Kingy than, I don't know, this Trumpian demagogic politician that emerges at the end. It's funny to think that's why people are pointing at this book now and like, well, it's so prescient and it really stands out. It's his most, like, he really anticipated this Trump character. Um... He did, but I agree with you. I don't think it's the strength of the book. I just think it's the end of the book. So, and the end yeah. of the main character. And,
0: and look, just to kind of reset it up for anyone who hasn't heard about it, it's about this guy, first of all, Johnny Smith. Like, give me a break <laughs>
2: his name. Well, that's kind of awesome. I mean, like, he's such an everyman. Like, he's Johnny Smith, Eng- high school English teacher out on a date. Like, it's perfect. It's a great... Blank character that he can then invest with all this. I don't know with his meaning and he gets freighted with all this stuff. I kind of love that. Yeah,
0: I mean, he he suffers an accident, goes into a coma, wakes up. He can see the future and then sort of, you know, famously, he finds the ability to sort of like change it, which leads to these central conflicts in the book of like what he should or shouldn't do. Okay, again, a lot to like about this book, but Gareth, there are elements in it that just feel like a Xerox copy of other Stephen King, and that's why, ultimately, this would not be a, you know, this would be flirting with my top 10, but definitely not near my top five. Okay. Number one, the mom, who's in the sort of, like, religious fervor, Mm -hmm. 100% Xerox lesser copy of the mom from Carrie.
2: Yes. Okay. Fair. Fair. And it's not but he say- handles her, and she like, I don't know. She kind of gets taken care of, you know, in a way. In Carrie, she's out of control, and she takes, you know, uh, yeah. So okay, but that's fa- that's valid. Okay. the The first
0: killer that he he bags. I think is just a complete Xerox of some of the other like truly terrifying baddies that he further explores. There is a relationship there and I don't have one in mind. I mean maybe an Annie Wilkes or somebody like that, but like I just think there's more to that character. I think he writes very effectively about serial killers and in fact it, it, now that we're in this true cri- crime now that we're in this true crime boom where everybody knows all the tendencies of Ted Bundy or whatever else I think for mm-hmm. writing at the time he he kind of nails a lot of the strange like, kind of um you know the intoxication of power the sexual fulfillment um uh, you know mm. during violent crimes like some of that stuff is stuff that you hear about frequently now being talked about as like trademarks of serial killers I think he's very effective there I also think that the relationship between um, that killer and his mother could have been much more explored. So I guess in my way, I'm saying this is a little bit of like a, a Ed Gein, Norman Bates, Xerox to me. Yeah, and, what and, was
2: it? That that killer, like, his mom put his a clothespin on his penis so yeah, he would never get aroused there, and stuff like that. Like Yeah, for writing in 1978-79, that is pretty... I don't know, it's pretty advanced stuff. You raise a good point.
0: Yeah, and I just felt like they should have been more explored. But the main thing... Okay, and this is where you and I are going to have a real big tiff, I think, on this.
2: <laughs> yeah, I, I, this is what I've been looking forward to. The love story, bro. I'm not feeling it.
0: <laughs> I'm just okay. not feeling
2: it. Not at all. I kind of love it as, I don't know, it's the great love that he they never got to have. Like, he gets in his accident. He's in a coma for what? Like, a few years? Um, four years. Five years. Four years. Four years. Four years. And so, obviously, in that time, this woman goes on and has a life and meets a husband who, I don't know, becomes this, like, kind of empty suit, ineffectual Republican politician, if you don't want to read too much into what Stephen King is saying. Um, And she has a life, and then she comes back and meets up with Johnny for one day with her baby, and they have, like, the best sex ever and then she goes on with her life um but i i don't know i never took that as a disappointment and i liked it as a i don't know it's just it was the great relationship that never was like it never got to be and i had no problem with that
0: he never sold me that she cared all that much about him in the beginning he felt like a rebound guy and steven goes to great lengths mm-hmm. to make you feel that she's hung up on this previous boyfriend she reluctantly says I love you at the end of the night but it's 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 not this emotional moment and you've got her getting sick around him <laughs> multiple times which I still right, don't right, know right. was ever really explained if that was supernatural if they had a tie there I just never bought or if
2: she just like has a thing for bad hot dogs
0: right I just never bought their love in the beginning and so while I do think he writes sort of effectively about the the guilt she has for it or whatever, it, it and the pining the longing for what he lost out by being in the accident. I don't. It did. Uh, for example, I'll make an I'll make a comparison. I never felt it was as earned attention of them getting back together as say Helen Hunt and Tom Hanks in Castaway. <laughs> right.
2: Okay. Yeah. 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 I don't. I enjoyed the wistful, romantic, like, what might have been of it. Look, she goes back to her husband. It's not like she leaves him for Johnny and his mess living with his dad after mom dies and things like that. Like, she moves on. So, like, give her some credit there. Um, I don't know. It just sort of feels like a romantic view of, like, what never was. You know, wistful is what I keep coming back to yeah so I
0: don't know. did you ever see the movie'cause I, I I listened to the episode of the Deadcast, which is like the newer Stephen King podcast, the Scott where, Wampler yeah, like Alex Winter was on um who I believe is Bill Preston Esquire mm-hmm. from <laughs> yeah uh Bill and Ted, and they were talking about dead zone and, and and Alex Winter was saying that he i he didn't like the movie as much on a rewatch as he thought. Now it's famously a Cronenberg movie that doesn't feel like a Cronenberg movie the way we would describe it. Um, but I think mm-hmm. for most people, they they think of it as a better Stephen King movie. And I, I don't know if that speaks to the actual quality of it or just the, the sheer insanity of a lot of those adaptations from the 80s, which which set the bar pretty low.
2: Right, and then didn't they make it into a TV show with Anthony Michael Hall they, as Johnny Smith? They did, and I have never seen a second of that, Like, which
0: is shocking yeah. for me. Usually there's like a, hey, yeah, I ran into like two seasons of it in the basement in Oxford, but like I I just honestly it was like a total blind spot for me.
2: Yeah, I've never seen any of this acted out on screen. It yeah. exists in my tears glasses okay. off dead zone, Gary. Before we move on then, <laughs> we have to discuss in this era do you give a shit then about the political angle at the end and it's prescience for Trump or is somebody like Trump always going to be predicted? Is this like a stock character in history? The like, you know, sort of ego bloated, sociopathic, self-absorbed fascist who thinks they have all the answers. Like is predicting that not that special. And how do you feel about that?
0: I think the, I think the construct at the end with the future being changed not by, and look, spoiler, but come on. Um, Mm -hmm. the Four-year-old book. Yeah, the, the future being changed not by the actual assassination but by the optics when he holds the
2: baby in front of him to shield himself is genius. That is a great piece of writing and a great plot twist.
0: I actually believe in my heart of hearts, Stilson would have been... Better if he had been underwritten. Um, okay. Yeah, yeah. Because the stuff with him like killing the dog, the, it's a okay. Every, I I've heard podcasts and things where people are like, "Oh, that's so chilling." It's like, yeah, you just don't like dog violence. I'm sure. Like, I I just I, right, it didn't right, seem right. very realistic to me. His his whole thing about like blackmailing the the security, like the biker, felt weird. Mm. His rise felt too. Um. It was all kind of hammy, like it's him bribing someone, it's him whatever, it's him like kind of cheating the system. I I actually think this book would have worked really well if like 300 pages was like manhunt for serial killer and it works, and then he just goes Mm. to rally, handshakes the guy, and then has to make an impulsive decision. This is the only time I'll ever cross paths with this presidential hopeful and I don't really mm-hmm. know anything about him. I just have to make a choice now, all in or whatever. And I'm not trying to rewrite Stephen King's universe. The, the book's fine. People loved Stillson. I guess I thought he was more
2: caricature. I was kind of blown away the first time I read it. In hindsight, talking to you, I agree with you that I think um, the serial killer angle is the more effective of the two. Um, and it feels like there's Yeah, Spider-Man 3 problems. Like, there's too many bad guys here. Um, I also think that you can give Stephen King credit for it now, but I also, like, I don't know. This is a child of, you know, post-World War II. Like, this stuff is cyclical. It's always going to be predictable that somebody like that is going to come along. Um, We just happen to be in that moment now. And... Oh wow, he anticipated this forty years ago. You know, like I don't know, he's written a lot of bad things. The Simpsons have famously anticipated a lot of things. So I mean, um, he—you could make
0: a pretty strong case that he's kind of a parallel to like a George Wallace, you know? Um, Yeah. Or David Duke just had that big series on Slate, like the podcast um, about him. Like I do think there has been there have been these weird cult of personalities, thinly veiled um populist campaigns that do pop up now and then and like i think mm-hmm. some of the writing is effective i do think some of it's prescient like great i i would read it i think it's interesting i just i don't know it was fine it was fine i just like i just you know steve when we when you're rereading these books um you know you, you're happy when they're a winner um but kind of secretly you're hoping oh wow what if this is like the uncovered gem that's gonna rock it up into like my top two
2: Well, that's the thing. I mean, like at this point you start to read any Stephen King list and most of them are pretty rote. Although you were really excited about revival and the aforementioned Scott Wampler was uh, tweeting about revival the other day and he was like kind of floored by the ending. So that is one that I'm going to have to read. So we shall revisit. Um, I'm also reading Salem's Lot. Sorry, Mom. Yeah, we're gonna
0: do we're gonna do Salem's Lot. Um, at some point, we got to talk about the stories collections. Uh, we'll get there. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, at good times, man. So, yeah.
2: is this your is this in your top five still? Uh, it was pushed out of my top five upon rereading Pet Cemetery. Okay. Yeah, yeah. This would be like
0: around ten for me. I, I'd have to okay. m- I'd redo my list, but like, um. You know, well, maybe we'll revisit the list here in a couple months when we get a couple, few more under
2: our belt. Do it for Christmas. We'll do it like have yourself a merry little Christmas. Yeah, there we go. And we'll re-rank that.
0: Yeah. And uh, and that's our show for this week. Uh, big shout out to Jessica Luther. Go read her book, Loving Sports When They Don't Love You Back with Kavitha Davidson. Uh, really good stuff. I, I had a chance to, to, to get an early read on it. And Gareth, um, any shout outs for you? I got nothing this week. (laughs) Shout out Johnny Smith. Then, in the immortal words of Shaquille O'Neal, booty rappers.
2: Stay booty.